we've got competing dynamics on the congressional calendar. On the one hand, both chambers want to get out of town as soon as they can to go home and campaign. On the other hand, both chambers need to pass a continuing resolution to keep the government funded beyond the end of the fiscal year, which arrives at midnight on Friday night. Complicating matters further is the Jewish holiday, which will prevent action on Monday and Tuesday. So the Senate will return Tuesday afternoon and will stay in session through Thursday or Friday or Saturday or Sunday as necessary. The House will return Wednesday and will also stay in session through Thursday or Friday or Saturday or maybe even Sunday as necessary. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Monday and took up and passed three bills under suspension of the rules. Votes were requested on 12 other bills and 10 other bills passed by voice vote. On Tuesday, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of S-1098, the Joint Consolidation Loan Separation Act. Then the House took up a measure to roll those 12 bills I just mentioned into one measure and pass them all at one time, and that passed. Then the House passed another bill under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 8873, the Presidential Election Reform Act. That passed by a vote of 219 to 209. Then the House took up S-1098, the Joint Consolidation Loan Separation Act. That passed by a vote of 232 to 193. Then the House took up H.R. 8873, the Presidential Election Reform Act. That passed by a vote of 229 to 203, with nine Republicans crossing party lines to vote with the Democrats. Not coincidentally, not a single one of the nine Republicans crossing party lines to vote with the Democrats will be coming back in January to be members of the next Congress. On Thursday, the House brought to the floor a package of four bills designed to help Democrats fight back against the notion that they are anti-police. First came the rule, which passed. Then came H.R. 6448, the Invest to Protect Act, which passed by a vote of 360 to 64. H.R. 8542, the Mental Health Justice Act, which passed by a vote of 223 to 206. H.R. 4118, the Break the Cycle of Violence Act, which passed by a vote of 220 to 207. And H.R. 5768, pay attention, the Victim Incident Clearance and Technological Investigative Methods Act, also known as the Victim Act, which passed by a vote of 250 to 178. And then they were done. This week in the House, they'll be off Monday and Tuesday for the Jewish holiday and will return Wednesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m., At that time, the House is scheduled to take up no fewer than 32 bills under suspension of the rules. Also in the hopper are H.R. 7780, the Mental Health Matters Act, H.R. 3843, the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act of 2022, and S. 3969, the PAVA Program Inclusion Act. The House may also consider legislation related to the Stock Act, and at some point, the House is going to have to take up a continuing resolution. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Florence Y. Pan to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on Treaty Document 117-1, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which is an international treaty its proponents say will phase down global production of hydrofluorocarbons, which are also known as greenhouse gas refrigerants. Its opponents say it abdicates U.S. sovereignty over environmental regulations to the United Nations and would increase costs for U.S. consumers with only negligible potential impacts on the global climate. 
On Wednesday, the Senate voted on an amendment offered by Alaska Republican Senator Dan Sullivan that would condition the Senate's ratification of updates to that international environmental treaty on the United States taking action to remove China's designation as a, get this, developing nation, the world's second largest economy. The amendment passed unanimously by a vote of 96 to 0. Then the Senate voted to pass the resolution of ratification on the Kigali Amendment by a vote of 69 to 27. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nominations of Amanda Bennett to be Chief Executive Officer for the United States Agency for Global Media and Arati Prabhakar to be Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. On Thursday, the Senate rejected a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to S-4822, the Disclose Act. The motion failed by a vote of 49 to 49. I expect that's the last we'll see in this Congress of this terrible piece of legislation, which we discussed at great length last week. Then the Senate voted to confirm Amanda Bennett as Chief Executive Officer of the United States Agency for Global Media and Arati Prabhakar as Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return on Tuesday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 6833, the legislative vehicle for the continuing resolution. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, let's talk about the House Republican commitment to America. On Friday, in a suburb of Pittsburgh, in a deliberate nod to Newt Gingrich's 1994 contract with America, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy unveiled the House Republican commitment to America a four-part agenda for action following Republican recapture of the House in the November midterm elections. The agenda's four parts are, first, an economy that's strong, which includes fight inflation and lower the cost of living, make America energy independent and reduce gas prices, and strengthen the supply chain and end dependence on China. Second, a nation that's safe, which includes secure the border and combat illegal immigration, reduce crime and protect public safety, and defend America's national security. Third, a future that's built on freedom, which includes make sure every student can succeed and give parents a voice, achieve longer, healthier lives for Americans, and confront big tech and demand fairness. And fourth and finally, a government that's accountable, which includes preserve our constitutional freedoms, hold Washington accountable, and restore the people's voice. You'll find a document on the commitment to America in the suggested reading if you want to learn more about it. Now to the January 6th committee. On Wednesday, September 28th, that is just a few days from now, at 1 p.m., the January 6th committee will hold what will probably be its last public hearing before the November elections. The committee has not yet released a witness list, but committee member Congressman Jamie Raskin said in a media interview over the weekend that he did not anticipate that conservative activist Ginny Thomas, who happens to be the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, would be among those witnesses. Now, back to the continuing resolution. As of this broadcast, we still have not seen the language of the continuing resolution. Nevertheless, on Thursday of last week, before Congress left town for the weekend, Senate Majority Leader Schumer filed cloture on the legislative vehicle for the continuing resolution. We anticipate he will unveil the final text of whatever appropriators agreed to over the weekend as a substitute amendment on Tuesday, and then the Senate will be the first to vote on it. 
Schumer is still planning to attach the language of an oil and gas permitting reform bill authored by West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin to the CR. That language got a boost last Thursday when Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Manchin's West Virginia colleague, endorsed it. But I'm not at all sure the other 49 Senate Republicans feel as good about that bill as Shelley Moore Capito does. In fact, I'm quite sure that they don't. They still remember how Manchin and Schumer snookered them to get them to vote on the $250 billion CHIPS bill in the belief that Manchin had killed the Democrats' reckless spending reconciliation bill, only to have Manchin and Schumer announce their agreement on that massive spending bill just hours after the CHIPS bill passed the Senate with Republican support. Republicans feel Manchin deceived them, and the vast majority don't seem to be willing to forgive him for that, even if he's now pushing for legislative language that, under other circumstances, they'd be quite happy to support. As of this broadcast, congressional leaders are still talking about adding $12 billion in supplemental assistance to Ukraine to the CR. Given the strong support that Ukraine funding has on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers of the Congress, that appears to be pretty much a done deal. Now to illegal immigration and an update on some numbers that are really quite startling. On Monday of last week, Customs and Border Protection officials released data showing that the number of migrant arrivals reported along the southern border in the fiscal year 2022 reached and surpassed 2 million in August, with a month left to go in the fiscal year. The August number was 203,598 which included 181,160 apprehensions of migrants who entered the country illegally and 22,437 migrants and asylum seekers who were processed at official ports of entry. That means that for the fiscal years 2021 and 2022, most of which fell under Joe Biden's presidency, in fact, all but four months of which fell under Joe Biden's presidency, CPV apprehended a total of 3.8 million illegal immigrants. When you add in the known and unknown gotaways, that means that more than 5 million illegal immigrants have tried to enter our country during the first two years of the Biden presidency. Just as concerning, CPB reports that during the month of August, CPB officials apprehended 12 individuals on the FBI's terror watch list. That brings the total for FY22 to 78 so far, which is triple the number apprehended over the last five years. Let's put those numbers in perspective. In FY2017, two were apprehended. In FY18, it was six. In FY19, zero. And in FY20, there were three. That's a total of 11 during the four years of the Bush presidency, 11. In FY21, there were 15 caught. And in FY22, 78 so far. What do suspected terrorists know about border security under the Biden administration that the rest of us don't? Meanwhile, to the north, specifically Martha's Vineyard, liberal lawyers from a group called Lawyers for Civil Rights have filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of three of the Venezuelan migrants who were transported to Martha's Vineyard, courtesy of the state of Florida, claiming they were lied to and had their civil rights violated. While I certainly agree that being flown to the liberal enclave of Martha's Vineyard qualifies as a traumatic experience, I don't think it's against the law. Stay tuned. The FBI, the FBI raid follow-up. On Wednesday of last week, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals issued a ruling that partially set aside an earlier ruling by Federal District Judge Aileen Cannon. The new ruling allows the Department of Justice to resume using the roughly 100 documents marked classified in their investigation of former President Trump 
to determine whether he illegally retained national defense documents and obstructed repeated efforts to recover them. The appeals court ruling also agreed to the DOJ request that the documents marked classified need not be reviewed by Trump's lawyers or the special master. The three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals included two judges appointed by President Trump, Judge Britt Grant and Judge Andrew L. Brasher, and one appointed by President Obama, Judge Robin S. Rosenbaum. Now to a campaign update. Let's start with the Senate, and let's look first at the five Republican-held seats that are really in play, Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. In Florida, two-term Republican incumbent Marco Rubio is being challenged by Democrat Congresswoman Val Demings. Rubio has led in 10 of the 11 released polls since the beginning of August, but he's consistently polling between 45 and 49. The latter is fine for an incumbent, but 45 can be worrisome. I don't expect Rubio is going to have that much difficulty winning this race, especially with the GOTV machine that I'm sure Governor DeSantis's campaign has put together. But I wanted to let you know I'm keeping my eye on it. The Cook Political Report rates this race as lean Republican. I think that's giving too much credit to Demings. I would put this in the likely Republican category. In North Carolina, the Republican candidate is Congressman Ted Budd, who had former President Trump's endorsement in the contested primary. The Democrat nominee is Sherry Beasley, a former state Supreme Court justice. There have been four polls released since August, and Budd has led in three of them. The Cook Political Report rates this one as lean Republican, and again, I don't expect Budd will have much trouble winning this race. In Ohio, the Republican candidate is J.D. Vance, who wrote a book called Hillbilly Elegy, and since has been a venture capitalist. He had the endorsement of former President Trump in the hotly contested Republican primary. He's now running against Democrat Congressman Tim Ryan. There have been five polls released since August, and Vance has led in four of them. Cook Political Report rates this race as lean Republican, and that sounds about right. We've already discussed the Pennsylvania Senate race before. The Republican candidate is Dr. Mehmet Oz, who was endorsed by former President Trump. And the Democrat candidate is the lieutenant governor of the state, the very liberal John Fetterman. Fetterman has led in every poll released since June by an average of about four points. The Cook Political Report rates this race as lean Democrat, even though it's a Republican-held seat. In fact, it's the only seat that's currently held by a Republican that the people at the Cook Report think will actually flip. The one Republican incumbent in a real dogfight is Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. He's being challenged by the lieutenant governor of the state, again, a very liberal Democrat by the name of Mandela Barnes. After spending most of the summer trailing Barnes, Senator Johnson upped his game in September and flipped the script. He's led in three of the four polls released in September. The Cook Political Report rates this race as a toss-up, and that's where it's going to stay right until the very end. Now let's look at the seats held by Democrats. At the start of the cycle, there were four Democrat incumbents believed to be in trouble. Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, and Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Hassan got a pass when the state's incumbent Republican governor, Chris Sununu, took a pass on the race and Republicans couldn't find a top-tier challenger. Even President Trump was so unimpressed by the field that he decided to stay on the sidelines in that contested Republican primary. That Republican primary is now done. The Republican nominee is Don Bulldog, a retired Air Force general. Two polls released in the wake of the primary show Hassan leading Baldock by 11 and 8 points, respectively. The Cook Political Report has moved that race from toss-up to lean Democrat.
Mark Kelly's reelection campaign in Arizona seems to have caught a break. That's where the Republican nominee is Blake Masters, who used to work for billionaire Trump supporter Peter Thiel, who seeded a pro-Masters super PAC with $15 million in the primary. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell's affiliated super PAC made the decision a few weeks ago to take down its planned ad buy in Arizona so it could deploy those millions elsewhere, likely in the belief and definitely in the hope that Thiel would step up and throw some more money Masters' way. That has not happened yet, at least not to our knowledge. Consequently, the Cook Political Report has shifted that race's rating, moving it from the toss-up category to the lean Democrat category. Now, I will tell you the polling is odd. Kelly leads in virtually all of them since the primary, but the two Trafalgar group polls, remember Trafalgar has done a better job polling over the last several cycles than most of the major media outfits. The two Trafalgar Group polls still show Kelly in the lead, but a much tighter race. They show that this race is definitely within reach for Masters. It may be lean Democrat, but it's definitely not yet likely Democrat. In Georgia, Republican nominee Herschel Walker's challenge to incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock is stabilizing. This has been a margin of error race since August. Of the seven polls released in this race since August, six of them have had the ballot test inside the margin of error. It is effectively tied. And finally, we get to Nevada, where the nation's most at-risk Senate Democrat, Catherine Cortez Masto, is running for her life against Republican nominee and former state attorney general Adam Laxalt. There are no certainties in politics, so I will not make a Broadway Joe Namath type guarantee. But if I were in Nevada and I could find a casino taking bets on the outcome of the U.S. Senate race there, I would wager a lot of money on Laxalt. There have only been two polls since last year where she has polled higher than 44 on the ballot test. And in the last three polls, she's both trailing Laxalt and at 43 or lower. This one is as close to being done as can be. And that's our Washington report and our campaign update for this week.